Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Happy, happy Easter. Welcome to the show. Today, Labour. We've got to talk about this, haven't we? It's one year on. So we can either avoid it, ignore it, pretend it's not a thing, or we can have a night, I think, a very thoughtful. It's going to be a thoughtful discussion about Keir Starmer and the Labour Party a year after his resounding victory in the leadership contest. Oof. Oh boy, where are we going to begin with this one? So we've got two fantastic guests I will bring in shortly. But I'm just going to set, I think, just set the scene. Let's set the scene, shall we? So clearly Labour suffered a brutal shellacking, if that's the term we use in British politics, not normally, but in the 2019 election. And in the rubble of defeat, a traumatised Labour Party had a leadership contest in which Keir Starmer uh, came on top with over 50% of the vote, winning on the first preferences. Now, if we were going to distill his platform, what did Keir Starmer stand for in that leadership contest? I think it's very clear what he stood for. It was to retain the core domestic radical policies of the Corbyn era, but combine it with competence, party unity, and electability. And I think all of those are important to point out because, I mean, take unity. I think it was definitely the case that lots of people from all wings of the Labour Party just felt exhausted by the never, the, the forever war of, of internal Labour politics. Uh, people clearly on the electability point were pretty fed up and traumatised by a devastating Conservative victory and what that meant for them, for the country uh, as a whole. They wanted to kick the Tories out. What is the point, of course, of being in politics if you don't want to replace the Tories with a viable alternative government? And, you know, they kind of felt that, I think a lot of people felt, well, look, he doesn't have the baggage of Jeremy Corbyn. How could the how could the media possibly destroy Sir Keir Starmer, former director of public prosecutions? Simply wouldn't have the same impact, those media attacks. Where are we a year later? In terms of the, let's just go back, in fact. So what Keir Starmer said during the leadership Contest. I think we've got a clip of what he said. The fundamental shift in our policy from 2015 to 2017 and then to 2019 to a more radical politics was the right fundamental shift. Big issues like being a party of anti-austerity, being a party that wants to invest in our public services and in manufacturing. Really important shifts and I'm very concerned that as we move forward we don't either trash the last Labour government or trash the last four years. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the 10 pledges he stuck by were, for example, to increase taxes on big business and the rich, the top 5%. Uh, it was to scrap tuition fees. It was common ownership, a bit worried about the phrasing there because that lends itself to maybe being interpreted in different ways than public ownership is. Maybe many of us would understand it. 
workers' rights, green industrial uh, revolution, no more illegal wars, defense of migrants' rights. There were a lot of pledges. Now, <laughs> recently, we ended up in a pretty grim situation where the Tories were advocating hiking corporation tax and Labour were briefing that they opposed increasing corporation tax. In, a clear violation of those pledges. Um, and then they got themselves in a real, real mess over whether they supported uh, changing the tax thresholds uh, um, at the same time. So they got, it became a, a story about what the hell does Labour think on tax. More broadly, I, I think it would be fair to say that summing up Labour's vision for the country is very difficult to explain. Whatever any of you think, however you voted in the leadership contest or didn't or whoever you support, what wing of politics you're from, if you were going to honestly sit down now and, and sum up in a sentence, in a way you would on a doorstep if you knocked on someone's door to try and convince them to vote for the Labour Party, this is what Labour stands for. I think you would probably struggle if you were going to be completely honest with yourself without relying on platitudes and kind of management speak of a fairer country and things that no rational person would oppose. Uh, so I think there's that's one issue that, to talk about. Do do they even have a vision for the country? Do they know what they want to do with power at all? Part unity, well, most of the left, of course, are no longer on the front bench, partly because Labour insisted on whipping to abstain on issues like um, um, the rights of undercover police officers to rape, torture and murder. Uh, some just thought that was just a basic principle they should not su support giving the powers of undercover police officers to do those things. Um, and, and, and more broadly, if we're going to look at electability, it's absolutely the case that polling went up very significantly to begin with when Keir Starmer became leader. His personal poll ratings were the best of any opposition leader since Tony Blair. That's a fact. Labour was 24 points or so behind after a terrible election defeat. And he brought under his leadership in the first few months, Labour, to basically level peg with the Conservatives. I suppose the caveat you already introduced there is Labour won 40% of the vote under Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 and level pegs for the next 18 months. So basically, he took Labour back to where it was before January 2019, when Labour and the Tories vote both collapsed to the Brexit Party and to the Liberal Democrats and the Greens on the other side. The Tories clawed back their vote. Labour didn't who uh, or didn't as much. Uh, and, and obviously that that allowed the Tories to win their seismic victory in 2019. But what's happened since in the last few weeks is Labour's polling has fallen very markedly. So if we talk about Starmer's average approval rating, uh, by June last year, 41% of people approved of his leadership and just 22% disapproved. Now, 33% disapprove and just 31% approve. Um, Amongst Tory voters, his approval and it's an important benchmark for that because one of his pitches was to win over Tory votes. Uh, his approval rating amongst Tory voters is 21%. His disapproval rating is 47%. Average net approval ratings, the la Johnson now is on plus three. Starmer is on minus two, so he's less popular than the Prime Minister. Best Prime Minister uh, average ratings... Johnson, 42%. Starmer, 28%. So there's a big gap. That's fallen. It, back last September, Starmer was ahead on that. Um, I'm, I'm using here, by the way, the brilliant pollster, L. Fallen. Do you follow them? Lefty Stats on Twitter because they've got, they, they bring together all of these statistics. 
Um, on whether he looks like a prime minister in waiting, again, a very important benchmark because looking prime ministerial, looking the part, was very much part of the Keir Starmer cell. Um, and again, last June, 40% thought he did, 32% said he didn't, but now 52% think he doesn't look like a prime minister in waiting, just 25% disagree. Um, in terms of Labour 2019, people who voted uh, for Labour in 2019, who I think we could all agree are core Labour voters, last June, 66% of people who voted Labour in 2019 uh, approved of Keir Starmer and just 8% disapproved. That's now 49% of them who approve. So less than half of the people who voted for the Labour Party in 2019 approve of Keir Starmer as leader, 24% disapprove. So there's a massive collapse in where that's headed. And in terms of Labour's headline polling, Labour's no longer level pegging and in some polls is 10 points behind the Conservatives and indeed has the same polling as Labour got in 2019, which I think we all agreed was a very, very bad result. So uh, I suppose if we're looking at electability, uh, if we're looking at uh, the policies that he committed to, if we're looking at unity of the Labour Party, I don't think anyone looks at the Labour Party and thinks it's a united party. From the outset, it doesn't look great, does it? But we need to talk about this in detail. Uh, so I'm about to bring in our two brilliant uh, uh, guests. Uh, about not just a whinge, a whingeathon. nothing wrong with whinging, by the way. It's very therapeutic. Not just a whinge about it, but to proactively think, what next? What can the left do or say? There's obviously a big electoral test coming up in May in terms of local elections, Scottish elections, Welsh elections, the Hartlepool by-election. Um, but in terms of, you know, what should the left do? Can it meaningfully exert pressure on the leadership? Should it bother? Is Keir Starmer's leadership going to last? And I should say, uh, privately, MPs and shadow cabinet members who are not on the left are privately raising the issue of Keir Starmer's leadership as our union leaders and openly discussing about whether he's going to last the year. It's a big fall from where he started. Um, and there's already, again, the left, obviously, we're not happy, but uh, increasingly rumblings of discontent are being heard uh, in newspapers by those on the right of the Labour Party who are openly talking about their discontent and disillusionment with Keir Starmer's leadership. There's partly a shared critique, which is they don't know what he stands for. They don't know what his vision is. And the polling which is taking place in the so-called Red Wall, those are Northern and Midland seats, and also in Wales, which went from Labour to the Tory camp uh, in the 2019 election. One of the big, big objections those voters have is they do not know what he stands for. And the, the old problem in politics is if you don't define yourself, your opponents will define you instead. And I should also note that Keir Starmer's collapse in approval ratings hasn't been accompanied with a full-bodied media onslaught against him as Jeremy Corbyn, or to be honest, Ed Miliband, to a large degree, suffered. Uh, it's not like there's constant, vicious headlines ripping apart Keir Starmer. There's mumblings of discontent which have been voiced, but you're not getting front pages of the Daily Mail and the Sun who are savaging Keir Starmer on a daily basis. That's just not a thing. The final point, I think, is about the pandemic, which is we have one of the worst death rates, worst death tolls, and consequently worst economic consequences, because a public health crisis is an economic crisis, on the face of the earth. One of the most catastrophic handlings of the pandemic, and the government have pretty much got away with it. Uh, you know, the polling, I'm afraid, does show that. Uh, people are not convinced Labour would have done a better job. And 
I think, you know, has Labour had, what narrative has Labour had on the pandemic about why it's gone so badly wrong, in all honesty? And instead, it does look like the, the opportunistic kind of Captain Hindsight critique has landed with a lot of people. I, you know, I remember back in January um, when there was, this, you know, it was clear we were going to have to have a national lockdown. Labour couldn't bring themselves to support the closing of schools. They only U-turned two hours before the Tories did. So when you end up with a situation where, the, you know, Labour basically, uh, as I think Fraser Nelson in The Telegraph, a right-wing commentator put it out, it seems to be the strategy of working out where the Tories are going to end up on the pandemic and then just preempting them by a little bit. And that hasn't helped in terms of coming up with a critique of why we've ended up with one of the worst death tolls. And that's led a lot of people to conclude that the Tories had a bad hand but, you know, who'd want to be in their shoes and who could have done a better job when clearly we locked down repeatedly too late, messed up test and trace, reopened the economy too, too quick. Every single time with the likes of Rishi Sunak putting economic interests uh, ahead of human life, which was always a false dichotomy, because if you mess up the pandemic, you mess up the economy, which is why we got the worst of all worlds. But Labour didn't make that critique. And here we are. That's enough of me babbling. Let us bring in our two fantastic guests, the commentator, Rachel Shabby and Jess Barnard, the chair of Young Labour. We are very, very lucky to have both of you. Happy Easter and hello. Hello, happy Easter. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. It's an honour, it's an honour. Let's start off, I don't know, I guess it's a year on. Where would you say Labour are currently at? Who wants to kick off with that? What's your general overall assessment of Labour's current plight and situation? Who wants to kick off? Jess, go on. Happy to. Um, I mean, where? I mean, where are we though? That's the question, isn't it? Like, what do we stand for? And I think you kind of outlined it at the beginning. I don't think really many people can actually say at the moment what you know Keir Starmer's Labour Party actually means. What what we're going to fight for? What we've got to offer the country? And obviously. It goes without saying, it's a really difficult time, unprecedented times to be leader of opposition um, in a global pandemic. Obviously, it can't be a fun or easy uh, job. But if you go to become the leader of the opposition, uh, you don't expect an easy or fun job. Um, and it just feels like, you know, the Labour Party is just in complete disarray. And I can see why people are not moving towards voting for us because it doesn't look like a party at the moment that is ready to take on the challenges that we're currently facing. And, you know, I think the first year of of Keir has been essentially defined by just chipping away at the left and dismantling those kinds of movements um, and the passion and, you know, the, the socialist sort of wing of the party um, by any means necessary and, you know, backtracking on everything that Keir promised when he stood um, to become leader. And I think it's really disappointing as well, because, you know, when, when Keir was elected leader and he obviously won with a huge mandate, there were so, so many members who didn't vote for him, but were really willing to get behind him and really hopeful uh, that he would commit to what he had pledged, you know, commit to the, the policies that we all supported and were really passionate about, that enthused so many people. Um, you know, a lot of trade unions were, you know, hoping that he would continue to work with them um, and solidify our relationship with workers' movements. And he's just completely failed in all of those areas. Um, so I think it's, it's really disappointing first year for Keir. And either it's 
a huge failing of his op operation to define himself beyond trashing the left, or it's a huge success of a right wing outside of Keir's control who have got him to do the dirty work of trashing the left, getting rid of that threat, and now potentially they may look to remove him and replace him with someone who doesn't have the baggage of having trashed the left and someone that they see as more able to communicate effectively uh, some kind of message for what the Labour Party stands for and what their policy is but you know time will tell I guess to see whether that was the plan all along or whether it is just incompetence and obviously if it is incompetence that's pretty embarrassing for us when we've put so much on competency when we talk about competency with the Tories and we don't appear competent right now. So I think uh, it's disappointing, really disappointing first year. Rachel. Yeah, I think um, just just made some really important points there. And I, I think that's really interesting about the whole, you know, is is Keir essentially the stalking horse of the, of the right wing um, to pull the party in that direction? And install a leader in that direction. But I think one of the main things um, with why it's been disappointing in the way that Jess described is that when he came in as leader, there was all this goodwill. I mean, you know, Corbyn voters voted for him. Um, and the ones that didn't, as just said, absolutely supported him in his endeavour, be precisely because he set out his pitch on the basis of party unity, and those 10 pledges, which were essentially, I mean, some people did point out at the time that they were, you know, they were pretty movable. They were not exactly firm, but they were signaling an absorption of the left-wing economic arguments made in the, in the five years of Corbyn's leadership. So I think that, you know, all the people saying, you know, poor Keir, he's had a tough time um, trying to establish himself in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, I have limited sympathy with that, which we can talk about maybe, but even on its own terms, the reality is that he inherited a party that so wanted, was so united around him, that had so much goodwill um, for him being the unity candidate. And he completely failed on those terms. And I think we underestimate the importance of that, of, you know, how vital party unity is to a party that has been over the last few years so sort of toxically and self-destructively divided. And so it does now look like when you look at the Labour leadership, it's like, yeah, all right, all you, you know, the sensibles, the moderates, the centrists, you've got your party back. But what on earth did you want it back for? What are you going to do with this power beyond having power for the sake of it? Um, or beyond, you know, marginalising the left, which seems to be, you know, an end game in itself. What actually is the purpose of this power? And I think that's what voters are responding to as well. That's what the public is responding to as well, of what is it that you're for? What is it that you stand for? Who is it that you stand for? There's a sort of moral vacuum there to the leadership. And I think people can really smell that on the leadership and it's part of the reason why it's doing so badly yeah i mean dara has messaged is Keir simply a technocrat and i suppose yes i mean one of the things without getting too much into the you know personality stuff but you know, I mean, it reminds me of this interview that David Cameron did before the 2010 election when the editor of GQ, Dylan Jones, asked him, why do you want to be prime minister? And he didn't come up with a, 
because I want to change the country and do this or achieve that goal. He just said, because I think I'd be good at it. And I wonder if with Keir Starmer, that's kind of, that's kind of where he's at. He, he, his big, his big, he doesn't have a grand vision. He doesn't have a grand, you know, he, he was someone in his youth uh, who was involved in socialist politics, but there's, that's a, that's a well-trodden path. Um, uh, but he's someone, you know, he he thought to himself, look, I've run this large organisation. Uh, I'm good at administrative stuff. Um, basically, having been in charge of the CPS, the British state is obviously a lot bigger than the CPS, but I know how to run things. I know how to pull levers. That's my kind of thing. And the problem, what that's joined to is... Uh, even though he himself, I think, by the way, doesn't see himself as a factional creature, a lot of the people around him who was appointed, they do see themselves as factional creatures. So Jenny Chapman is the head of his political operation, a former Labour MP, he's very much on the right. Matt Pound, who is the former national organiser um, of Labour First, which is what we would call the old Labour right, for those who aren't familiar with them. They love nothing less than ice-picking trots, and they regard... <laughs> Trots is anyone to the left of Gordon Brown, as the leaked Labour report suggested. They don't mean people who believe in permanent revolution and, and revolutionary socialism. They they mean basically people who are to the left of um of of Brownite kind of iteration of social democracy. So yeah, that's my my question, Jess. Do you think basically, I mean it leads on to what you're saying, is this guy kind of a technocrat bureaucrat who who just likes the idea that he thinks he'd be a good prime minister? who surrounded himself with factional beasts who are filling a vacuum left by the lack of a coherent vision from the top. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think that that is how he sees himself. You know, I obviously see he painted himself as this non-factional, I'm here to unite everybody. Um, but we quickly saw, you know, the people he's chosen to surround himself with are on the right of the party. So I think, you know, he has to be held responsible for his like factional, alliances and leanings and, and what he has done but I do think you're right in that he sees himself as this just you know competent adults are back in the room um, I can just get this that get this job done but the problem with that is that he is failing on being a technocrat so when we look at uh, the party machinery uh, you know just yesterday with with his visit to um, a deeply homophobic uh, church you know, where, where are the background checks? Where are all the procedures that should be in place for you to have this smooth running operation where you can make sure that you are not marginalising um, people that you are supposed to represent and your membership? Um, you know, thinking about our messaging and our graphics and things like that, we're really not getting our message across very clearly and it's not just even about our messaging like what is the labor image because it just seems to flip-flop all over the place at the moment so if if his whole you know pitch for becoming uh, a prime minister is around being a technocrat that understands all this machinery he needs to get his team together and he needs to you know focus on that um but he, he clearly isn't going to. So I do think we have to hold him to account with the factional alliances that he's making, um, you know, while all this is going on. Also on top of that, though, he really does not have his finger on the pulse with what's going on, because every time there's this movement. So when we talk about Black Lives Matter um, and, you know, with the comments that he made, it's a moment, not a movement. Um, and obviously the uh, the intention, we were told, that Labour were going to abstain on the PCSC bill um, until the uh, the vigil of Sarah Everard, uh, just shows 
how much he is really not connecting with public mood or the potential backlash when you know Labour abstain on these really important issues of our time and authoritarian measures that this government's bringing in. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see, as I said, you know, what happens next and whether he's able to kind of create some narrative beyond I'm a technocrat. I mean, Rachel, there's talk in the press of Peter Mandelson being brought in. Uh, now, Peter Mandelson is someone who clearly, very unapologetically, is opposed to the sorts of policies outlined in the 10 pledges Keir Starmer committed to in the leadership contest. I mean, also the polling, Peter Mandelson's polling is catastrophic. Uh, it's not, not, not like people in the Red Wall are thinking, do you know what, I was going to vote Labour, but they've not brought Peter Mandelson back. To beat Peter Mandelson back, I might, I might reconsider. Um, what I mean, what does that? What do you think that tells us? The fact you know, you, to go from I'm going to be a more competent version, basically, of Corbyn, which is basically his leadership pitch, to bringing in the architect, one of the architects of New Labour, who basically believes in putting the left permanently in a box from which it can a sealed tomb, uh, is how they phrased it, uh, from which they can never exit. What's, what's that telling us? Well, first of all, I mean, I think this whole this whole pitch of we're the competent ones and spending five years telling the Corbyn leadership, you're so incompetent. And now we look at their operation, it's like, you're not the competent guys, are you? Like, if that's not, that's not what competence looks like. So it's been quite extraordinary that the thing they were beating the left leadership over the head with is is something that you know they don't possess particularly but the look i think it's a great um it's a terrible twist of timing that in this pandemic the pre precise moment when um the sort of leadership that is required is one that understands the scale of the change required as well as the appetite for change demonstrated so all the public support and the polling that we've seen over the last year for things like actually yeah we do want clean air we do want the government to prioritize um health and well-being and perhaps a four-day week and definitely address all those um terrible inequalities in this country along uh, racial regional and class lines and the intersection of those things um and the fact that the, the, the pandemic has, has ravaged us along those lines. So there's so much appetite for social justice and collectivism and a need for it in a post-pandemic world. And at that precise moment, that's the moment you choose to wheel in Peter Mandelson. I mean, it's just desperate in the disparity between what's needed and being signalled and what's actually being offered. And, you know, this is... This is a leadership that's stuck um, in a time warp uh, that's, you know, several decades old and does not remotely address the reality that we're in today. And actually, I think a big part of that is that disconnection from the grassroots because it's a leadership that's not interested in the, in the Labour left and it's not interested in the grassroots of the party. Um, it's not just that that sort of attitude is undemocratic in terms of party democracy. It's that it's cut off its own blood supply, that life force, because we know that the people who are organizing on the ground 
um, you know, have got engaged in all kinds of things, mutual support groups, food banks, um, providing hot food for NHS workers, um, mutual aid, NHS volunteering, all of that. Those are the people who are connected to the realities of what's going on in this country and what sort of hardships and need people are in. And if you as a leadership have cut yourself off from the grassroots, then you've also become incredibly disconnected to the realities that people are in in this country. And I think that sort of ambiguity and hollowness is something that, you know, is coming across in a really big way and is alienating voters in a really big way. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One of the things I think is interesting is, uh, I mean, if we take a step back, so New Labour was a, obviously I didn't, don't, don't support New Labour's brand of politics, but it was coherent and made sense at that historical juncture in that uh, you had the context of the defeat of the labor movement in Britain, the smashing of the trade union movement, the left had been thoroughly marginalized by the 1990s. You had the kind of the post cold war kind of capitalist triumphalism. There is no alternative, the end of history. And you had this period of economic growth driven by a financial bubble, which obviously eventually burst with pretty catastrophic consequences. But at the time, you know, I mean, infamously, Gordon Brown spoke of an end to boom and bust. Uh, but there was that sense of basically, you know, there can be this political project that will take the proceeds of growth from the financial sector and redistribute it in more fair and progressive ways than the Conservatives, not least in expanding um, public spending. Uh, it was obviously combined with increased private sector encroachment into the public realm. But that's what they did. There was also kind of theoretical basis. I mean, lots of people don't realize New Labour Party came out of Euro communism. There was uh, the journal Marxism Today, which was associated with the Communist Party. A lot of New Labour's leading ideological lights came from that. And they had this idea of post-Fordism, the idea that the economy had changed and transformed from the old, the Fordist model of factories, where you you, you had a, an industrial working class built with communities based around workplaces where people often did the same job all their lives and that changed and fragmented. So they, they, they were, there was a basis to what they were saying and doing and they did have ideas. I mean, they, a minimum wage, um, uh, a windfall tax on privatized utilities, uh, gay rights, devolution. 
so a kind of humanized Thatcherism kind of approach. And the Tories oppose those things. The Tories oppose the minimum wage and gay rights and devolution. Is the problem, I mean, I, do, do you not think the problem now is that brand of politics just isn't relevant to the here and now in a period of, of crisis? The, if you look at Labour's sister parties, most of whom are led by people with that kind of politics, they've all collapsed, even worse than the Labour Party. Um, and the problem is, is whilst it's true that a lot of Corbyn's opponents didn't spend the last few years trying to work out what they really believed, what, in a sense, what would they have come up with? I mean, that's why they're kind of left by uh, promising to take or leave aspects of the left's policies. We used to be the same. Before 2015, we were defined by what we were opposed. Stop the cuts, stop privatisation, stop war. But we didn't have any coherent sense of a society we wanted to build. And the Corbyn project and the Sanders movement forced the left to think seriously about what their, their vision of society would be in the 21st century. That was a very long spiel. But what I'm wondering, Jess, is, is the problem is they, you know, they, they are out of ideas, but, but that... Of course, they're out of ideas. That's the historical period we're in. It's not like the 1990s with financialized growth. It's a period of very acute crisis. And the Tories have changed because the old Tories just, you know, were very high Thatcherite ultras. These Tories will actually are willing to be economically interventionist. So if Labour comes up with modest tinkering around the edges policies, the Tories go, we'll just take that and repackage it. What do you think? Yeah, completely. They have really really i think um screwed this up completely because they they have defined themselves as people who are opposed to the left right rather than actually people who are opposed to what the tories have done to the country um and that's all that they've given us what what's quite interesting to watch is that when obviously Keir was was pitching to become the leader of the Labour Party was that he tried to appeal to all the people that believed in these things right so he committed to the policies that we had developed over the years of the you know the Corbyn era um, and he committed to all of those things that, that he said he believed in um, but so did his supporters and so to be fair did a lot of the the right of the Labour Party but what we're seeing now is this sort of daring shift for them to sort of be pushing back and say oh actually no we don't believe that anymore that's not fiscally competent and we're sort of seeing this like new labor kind of talk come back in um but like you said what solutions is that providing us if we're looking at you know the results of like the out outfall of like the covid and pandemic and the jobs crisis you've got huge like millions of people facing unemployment young people are in the worst position in terms of employment that they've been in uh, for decades what are they offering to young people who have nowhere to go like no jobs opportunities they can't buy a house in their lifetime they're being screwed over by their landlords what are you saying to these people and at the moment it's nothing and it feels like they don't want to dirty their hands with you know what's seen as kind of too radical or and they see the you know the downfall of our last um of the last election like as the blame of like this Corbyn era where we like put forward solutions and we dared to dream things could be better and it feels very much like they don't have anything and they don't dream that things can be better and they want to remove themselves as far as possible from the ideologies or solutions to the problems that we are facing. So I really don't think that they have the solutions and I think they spent the last five years wasted, you know, scrambling around just to attack the left. Yeah, Rachel, what do you, I mean, I try to work out what a distinctive kind of new Labour program would look like in the here and now which wouldn't just be appropriated and repackaged 
by the shape-shifting Tories under Boris Johnson. I, I, I mean, I just don't know what it would look like. But, I mean, what do you think in terms of, you know, Corbyn became leader because partly the intellectual and political exhaustion of all the other wings of the Labour Party. And it seems that has there just hasn't been any attempt to address that basic fact. Well, for one thing, I think that New Labour sowed the seeds of the current political destruction that we're witnessing. So certainly, you know, on things like immigration policy, or also just failing to tackle the sort of rampant inequalities that we're being set up, especially regionally, um, and as a consequence of deindustrialization and neoliberalism. I, I think that New Labour actually um, contributed to some of those problems that then sort of exploded in the form of uh, Brexit and a sort of rightward um, tug for our political climate. Um, so the problem now is that, you know, for the last few years, the Labour leadership has been thinking quite seriously about, well, how do we tackle this? We've got a fundamental problem here of social injustice, and it's along devastating lines of inequality, structural inequality. Um, and we do need to address that with redistributive economic policies. And we also need to think about creating a collective we that does not marginalize, demonize, demonize and scapegoat migrants and minorities, right? So they spent five years essentially building blueprints for that. You know, here's how we do this. If we want that as an end goal, here are the levers we push, here are the policies that we present to get there. And, you know, <laughs> this current leadership, instead of thinking, great, we've got all these policies that are ready made, they're good to go. Someone else has already done the work for us. All we need to do is roll them out. Instead of thinking that, they've just dumped the whole lot. And it's just exhausting to watch the Labour Party go through these cycles of, you know, no matter how often the polling says, actually, those policies are popular. <laughs> you know, the, the, the party goes, no, 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 they were rejected at the polls. Um, and it's just this fundamental misunderstanding of the political climate we're in and the kind of policies that are needed. And I think there's another piece here as well, which is to do with, you know, this leadership has made this big deal of, you know, because of the terrible defeat in 2019, which was terrible. But it's, so they've sort of gone, oh, we've, you know, we failed people, we need to get their trust back, we, we need to listen, we need to listen. And it's like, fine, but what is it that you're listening to? Who are you listening to? What happens if the person that you're listening to is spouting terrible nativist, nationalistic, you know, far right conspiracy theories? as happened to Keir Starmer when he was on, you know, LBC radio, radio a few months ago. What happens if that's what people are telling you? You know, are you going to confront that? Are you going to defang that? Because we are now in a political reality where that kind of sentiment has radicalised people. There has been a pull to the right. That's the political climate we're in. And unless you're the left that actively challenges that, all you are doing is facilitating it and making your own political fortunes less relevant in the bargain. Um, before we talk about kind of stuff to do with the Red Wall and how that's talked about and the leadership's approach there, I, mean, I do think the issue of competence is worth raising. In fact, 
just just an example today because competence was one of the big things they were you know look at our predecessors we're going to be the grown-ups in the room we understand how to run an opposition uh etc that's you know that was a big part of their pitch so today and george eaton at the new statesman's made this observation so that the headline in the observer is starmer i'll take my mask off and show why i should be pm now this messaging is i i do think this is quite indicative or something because as george eaton says starmer's mask offline doesn't make political sense it suggests he's been hiding his true self from voters and he's been using the mask as slipped as an anti-tory attack line it's also questionable rhetoric during a pandemic that to me is very obvious that's like if you were in a messaging meeting, you'd go, well, hold on. If we say we're taking the mask off, because obviously a mask off moment, you say that when someone has finally revealed their true self, which they've been trying to suppress. That's not a good image to convey. Obviously, we should be encouraging people to wear masks in a pandemic. So suggesting it's a positive to remove masks doesn't make sense either. Um, and uh, it, yeah, so it sounds like you're admitting to deception about who you are. The point I'm making, that's not, that doesn't scream competence. But the other point is this weekend, and this is not just about competence, admittedly. So uh, Keir Starmer went to a church, which he used as a political campaigning video, uh, which Theresa May had been condemned for explicitly four years ago for visiting because of its anti-LGBTQ stance and specifically its support for conversion therapy, which is a form of torture against LGBTQ people. And uh, the video remains up. They haven't apologized for it. Uh, now, I actually happen to believe people, you know, engaging with a range of different religious institutions, not all of whom have progressive views on a lot of things is important. There's a difference between that and using something as a linchpin of your political campaigning video. Um and, you know, LGBTQ Labour, who are just ridiculous, by the way, they're uh, run by, I'm sorry, I'll just say it, they're careerist hacks. They uh, they posted some mealy-mouthed statement in which they claimed they'd had an apology from the leader of the opposition's office, though that wasn't forthcoming when journalists approached the leader of the opposition's office. But again, you know, they could have just Googled the church. It takes, literally, if you just Google the church, it comes up with Theresa May's being condemned for visiting the church. Again, I think there's a wider point about their relationship with minorities. The Labour Party has angered LGBTQ people over that, over failing to address rampant transphobia, over the fact that they're putting forward a candidate for the Hartlepool by-election who, uh, who, who went on a trip to Saudi Arabia paid for by the dictatorship and spoke about how progressive and great Saudi Arabia was. Saudi Arabia decapitates gay people. You know, it's, it, and, and then, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, calling it a moment, not dealing with alleged racist racism by Labour Party staffers uh, against senior black Labour MPs. And I'll talk to you about that, Rachel, because I know you've, you've written a brilliant article about it. I mean, you know, so there's the issue of competence, which they promise, but there's also just it seems that they are completely tone deaf when it comes to minorities. They just don't seem to understand minorities at all. What do you think, Jess? I think that they are letting their anger and obsession with the left, I think, cloud their judgment. They are so convinced that when we pull them up on these things, that this is like a factional attack or, you know, whatever they want to construe it as. But actually, the reality is this is minorities speaking out about something that you have done as the party or as the leader of the party that is unacceptable, that undermines our rights, that 
you know that makes us feel unwelcome within our own party and we don't say you know we don't want to have to be going out in you know publicly saying i have concerns about my own party's position on trans rights of course we don't want to have to do that we want the party to be leading on these issues the labor party should be the natural home of marginalized communities but at the moment it is not you know at the moment we are pushing away marginalized communities because we're so the leadership are so determined to undermine their calls for justice and again i think it's just part of this we don't want to muddy ourselves with these you know woke issues um and you know really really quite awful awful characterization of, of these like red wall voters that they've kind of concocted in in their heads you know all the working class people don't care about these rights of course there are lgbt working class people i mean what planet are these people living on um so i really don't understand uh why you know they they haven't managed to grasp this still this late into Keir's leadership either it's down to you know d deliberate in trying to isolate the left and, and p position ourselves away from uh you know those kinds of politics identity politics as they might call it um or like you said it could be incompetent in which case they need to have a real overhaul of the people in charge of these decisions um, and they need they need to stop putting their head in the sand i'm sorry but you know the issue of transphobia is not going away in our party and you being silent on the issue and allowing members of the parliamentary labor party to be transphobic online that's not going away you need to address it and that's what being a leader means even if sometimes it is convenient even if sometimes it's not going to give you the headlines you want you need to make sure that you are leading us in the direction and standing up for marginalized communities in the labor party and you know it, it just really concerns me that we are now uh putting out anti-masker pitches so we can manage that kind of stuff but uh not anything else it's just a really disappointing time and you know i my heart goes out to everyone who has been affected by you know our failures on um issues and minority issues lately rachel what do you think because you wrote a a brilliant article where you interviewed a range of people about about this very specific issue yeah, I, I completely agree with Jess. I think she put it so well there in terms of, you know, it's actually, it's, it's, it's an obsession with factionalism and being not Corbyn. Um, and so being not Corbyn means being not, you know, woke, inverted commas, um, about things like equal rights um, for LGBT people and being a party that's free from discrimination. All of that is parked in the Corbyn basket. And therefore, you know, that it's almost like an allergic reaction that the leadership has. And thought, well, we need to do the opposite of that. And that was one of the most the heartbreaking things about, you know, in, interviewing people um, across the Labour Party. So whether it's whether it was um, politicians in the PLP or councillors or members or staff, that feeling that anti-black racism is just not being taken seriously by the party it's being dismissed um it's being ignored um and to the extent that you know it's creating an environment that's not safe for people um that feels really awful to be in and the party just constantly underplaying it and dismissing it and one of the big reasons for that um several of the people i spoke to mentioned this was well they just see it as a sort of attack on the leadership from the left by proxy, that people are using complaints of racism to attack the leadership. And it was just so 
desperately painful to hear that in itself. But also, of course, it had that echo of, you know, when people uh, complained about anti-Semitism during the Corbyn leadership and then said that there was this assumption that they were attacking the leadership from the right. So it's like this cruel mirror um, that's gone on there. Um, but I think that this drive to be not Corbyn has just put the party very much out of sync with just basic moral values and principles of, of the party. This whole, this whole mismanagement and misunderstanding of Black Lives Matter was so painful. Um, it was such a jarring disconnect. It wasn't just that Starmer dismissed the movement as a moment. It was then, as you said, what he went on to say afterwards of uh, describing the aims and the objectives of BLM as nonsense, which, you know, to me is akin to, to saying, well, you know, of course I support Palestinians in their cause, but why do they need to go on about the occupation so, so much? And why are we always wanging on about statehood and okay. justice? and equal rights it's like it felt like that you can't support something and then dismiss as nonsense the demands aims the structural aims of that organization which is what he did and that is such a severe misunderstanding that i actually don't think that's incompetence i think that's just a fundamental not understanding of structural racism and social justice. Um, I just don't think that's where he or the leadership is at politically. And I think that's a huge problem, particularly given that we are in such a far right nativist political climate at the moment. Just a couple of other things. We've got about 10 minutes left. But OM gets Tom Levins, great name. Is Kieran Labin for shock in May when they realise the sheer amount of left-leaning votes they have lost? I guess, I mean, we do have these elections coming up in a, in a month's time. And they're, as far as I know, the biggest set of elections outside of a general election since World War II because elections were delayed last year, of course, because of the pandemic. Uh, so there's lots of electoral tests. I think everyone in the country gets the opportunity to vote. So it's it's quite a unique event. And I suppose, I mean, it could go either. It's difficult to know, actually, what will happen because uh, it is true, obviously, Labour is just now clearly significantly um, behind in the polls compared to the Conservatives. And, uh, you know, but then again, you could argue, well, in 2017, which is the last comparable set of elections, and that was a high point for the Conservatives, actually. They did very well in the local elections. You could argue in Scotland, the SNP's travails haven't helped the SNP. Um, you could say in you know in Wales, the Welsh government have very good approval ratings. Uh, the Labour administration, Mark Drakeford, uh, in London, Sadiq Khan's going to absolutely smash that election. He might might win on the first round. Um, in Hartlepool, you know, it's true a lot of people voted for the Brexit Party in 2019, but then again, they didn't vote for the Conservatives. It's not automatic that a lot of those voters will suddenly vote for the Conservatives if they didn't do that in 2019. Brexit's been done. The new Brexit party under the reform, it's an anti-lockdown party, which doesn't most people just don't support in this country. It's a fringe issue. So you can actually see there's actually quite a lot of favourable ground. That said, if 2019 Labour voters, there's a big, massive disillusionment has set in, will a lot of those people come out and vote for the Labour Party, I suppose, is another issue. So I'd be interested to know what you think is going to happen in those elections. But the other thing is, on the red wall issue, the so-called red wall, what strikes me is there is a 
caricature of the Red Wall, which has been created and set up. Um, I should point out, I don't think anyone in Keir Starmer's operation in any significant way grew up in those communities or knows those communities. They use focus groups at everything uh, of the people who, who voted Tory from Labour in 2019. That's their substitute for having a vision. It's just, we'll just repeat back what we think those focus groups are telling us. Um, and obviously, I think one of the problems that we have to grapple with, though, is what's happened in a lot of those communities is a lot of the younger people have left because of a lack of secure jobs and they've gone elsewhere. And older people have increased in number in those seats. And it's just the fact there's a bigger generational divide in voting that than has ever existed in the history of democracy in this country. There's no, in 1983, young people voted for Margaret Thatcher. This idea of you're young, you're left wing, you become right wing, it's not borne out by the facts. Young people supported Reagan, and now they're more like support Bernie Sanders. Things have changed uh, for material reasons. Um, so I suppose, you know, what do you think is going to happen in the elections? But what's your take on the whole strategy when it comes to the so-called Red Wall and how it's portrayed as this homogenous, homogenous thing? And also why it's complicated, because you do get people from quite um, insecure in insecure, you know, who are people, you know, working class voters who clearly defected the Tories. There's also a higher rate of owner occupation in a lot of these areas that often retired owner occupiers who are then just put into a working class box, whilst younger people in insecure work are excluded from being working class. What, what's your take, Jess, on the elections coming up and, and the way everything is seen through the prism of the Red Wall? Mm. It's, you know, it is pretty uh, insulting caricature that, that is communicated uh, at the moment. I, I'm really curious, really, as to what kind of coalition of voters we are trying to create at the moment, because it feels like uh, Labour Party is putting all of its money on uh, appealing to this, uh, you know, I don't know, working middle-aged white man who uh, doesn't want to hear about trans rights, doesn't want to hear about anything else, you know, angry about statues. That's what it feels like, right? But the reality is working class communities are hugely diverse. This is something that I think that the, the leadership just do not understand. And like you said, you know, they have these focus groups, potentially that is what they're using to, uh, you know, dictate their decision making but they do not have the finger on the pulse of what is actually going on in these communities and like you said you know lots of young people having to leave to move to bigger cities to get job opportunities actually if you start talking to a lot of these communities about building that infrastructure the things that we talked about um, in the Corbyn area and communicating that and making sure that you're making the case for um, supporting people's families to be able to stay in their local area and grow up and you know, have their own families whatever that might be um, we aren't currently making any kind of case for that we're just we're not shifting any political ground we're just basically saying uh what don't you want to hear and we'll just avoid that at all costs and i also think you know when it comes to the local elections like we sort of talked about earlier we touched on you know what what our message is we're in a global pandemic we've been told for months on end to stay at home to kind of avoid this you know so unnecessary social contact um so we are now asking people to go out on voting day, go down to the polls where there'll probably be, be you know, hundreds of people queuing and put yourself potentially at risk to get out and vote Labour. But at the moment, why are we telling them to vote Labour? You know, what 
what are they gaining from voting Labour? We haven't put that across to people. And I do feel a little bit sorry for, you know, some of the local candidates who must just be trying to concoct like something um, and really, really heavily rely on like local agendas and local manifestos because it's sure sure as hell isn't coming from the Labour leadership. So I'm expecting that it'll be a really low turnout. In terms of young voters, I just cannot see young voters coming out in force to support the Labour Party at the moment. They haven't put forward any solutions for the crisis that we are facing. They haven't been talking about the big issues that young voters care about, like environmental um, climate justice. You know, that's been completely absent from, from the leadership's narrative for, for a long time now. Um, they really aren't engaging young people in in the political system and actually young people are turning away in their droves from parliamentary politics as a solution and looking to as we've seen take to the streets take direct action because that's the only way that they can see themselves being heard so unless the Labour Party starts listening young voters are going to keep turning away from them and they are a hugely key part of a coalition for us to getting into government. It's a really, really good point, I think, that a lot of the political tumult for the last few years in this country and elsewhere has been because younger people's lives have become so insecure and difficult and they're seeking alternatives to a status quo that doesn't benefit them. And those are the exact sorts of people being abandoned by the Labour leadership on the basis they have nowhere to go. And the Labour Together report actually said you, the one thing the Labour leadership should not do. The Labour Together report was done after the election by a range of Labour figures to work out what went wrong and they said the one thing you don't do is take your people who voted Labour in 2019 for granted because Labour did that with Scotland the Red Wall and look what happened that those younger voters are being taken for granted you can see that I mean Rachel what do you think yeah I completely agree those those voters are the ones that are being taken for granted um you know people in cities uh, ethnic minorities Labour seems to think it's got those in the bank when it very clearly hasn't. And I think there's something about, you know, uh, the Turkish writer Ece Temelkuran put in her book, um, she's a brilliant book, How to Lose a Country. Um, she wrote there that if your moral values aren't politically organised, then you end up feeling quite alone. And I think that's, that's what's happened. You know, so many people over the last year, including plenty of young people, have looked at the Labour leadership and thought, well, you don't you don't reflect my moral values at all but also you've done it in the middle of a pandemic and a lurch to the right where we're seeing the government um you know be incredibly authoritarian increasingly so on on many on many areas um and so precisely at the moment when you need a political home or center of gravity uh the labor leadership has decided not to be one so you know that is a terrible failing in, in and of itself but especially when you consider how energized and mobilized young people were prior to this leadership so during the corbyn years just how many young people got engaged with politics and who are now completely uh, disengaged and put off by the leadership. I think that is a terrible failure um, just on its on its own terms. But also, you know, this whole narrative of, you know, seeking to appease a mythical red wall, and it is mythical, you know, this, this construct doesn't actually exist in reality. Many, many people have pointed out that there are, you know, red and brown bricks in the red wall. Um, it just feels like a very sort of disconnected, middle-class, patrician way 
of approaching politics, but it's also that fundamental question of, are you going to watch the polls as, um, you know, US Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said, are you gonna watch the polls or are you gonna move the polls? You know, are you going to be boxed in by the fact that the political class um, is pushing you in a rightward direction um, and is pushing the country in a rightward direction? Or are you actually gonna challenge that and unpack that? Because until you do, you have zero, um, political wriggle room. You are boxing yourself in. And that is just a road to ever diminishing votes and ever diminishing support, including from your own existing base. Finally then, because I'm sorry, slightly overrun. So just a final one. What's the left strategy in all of this? And and just by the way, on what you just said, Rachel, Gwyneth says, what strikes me is the centrist anti-woke, anti-protest painting of the Red Wall demographic was the Middle England demographic 10 years ago. So it's interesting how these things are reframed and reformulated. What's the left strategy? How, does Can the left put pressure on the Labour leadership? Is there any point at doing so? Will it get any meaningful concessions? Are they even scared of us? Uh, I mean, they'll probably blame us for anything that goes wrong. Uh, people on Twitter criticising Keir Starmer apparently can uh, transform Labour's electoral prospects. Um, but, but also... You know, I mean, is Keir Starmer's leadership going to last? I mean, what do you think, Jess? What's What happens next, basically? I mean, you know, they've done an incredible job at, at trashing the left. Um, you know, if there is one thing that they've been pretty effective at, it's been that. Um, so you have to hand it to them. It's been one of the fastest, most brutal operations I think we've seen. Um in the Labour Party of the treatment of the left. And they've kind of done it in a drip feed way. So, you know, the, the suspension of, of Corbyn, the treatment of CLPs, the whipping to abstain on bills that they know that the left are really passionate about, uh, suspending front benches from the left, um, not suspending the people who, you know, said that they hoped uh, a young left-wing member died in a fire in the leaked report. Um, all of these things, they've kind of drip fed us to, I guess, create this, this discontent where we are seeing the left uh, leaving the party, but also kind of splintering in its strategy, right? So we've got those on the left that are saying, no, it's not worth it, leave, get out, you can't associate yourself with this. And then you've got those that are saying, you know, stay and fight. So I am a supporter of stay and fight, but what does that actually mean? Because there's no point saying that if, if you don't actually have a plan for what that looks like. I think we really need a, a coherent and a collective um, of people working together from across the party. I think too often the left looks to PLP representatives from the socialist campaign group to kind of lead us, um, which is against everything we believe in really. You know, they're there to represent us and it should be us, the grassroots movements, the membership that leads this movement and this pushback um, and holds the party to account and eventually, you know, elect more socialist people, uh, working class people who can represent uh, the values and the things that we need to see, the societal change that we need to see. So I think our strategy really does need to be um, building that grassroots, grassroots movement, returning to the kinds of, uh, you know, like working class organising Work, organizing in our workplaces um, and making sure that we are doing the work behind the scenes to to put across our platform for change because we have that right that we don't need to go away and and work on what our solutions for for the current situation now because we have that we know what we're trying to achieve and we know what society needs so we need to find a way to communicate that and build our base back up and work together on this because obviously it's a really difficult time people are really disenfranchised but we've got to find a way to motivate and encourage people to fight back what do you think rachel what next 
Yeah, I think that's a really sound analysis. Um, it is, I, my sense of this current leadership and Farmer or not, definitely the people around him, is that they actually are almost physically allergic to anything that comes from the left. You know, it is that deeply factional. It really is, you know, such a you know, fatal problem in the party and the sort of seed of its own destruction. So that anything at all that comes from the left is ignored because of where it's come from, regardless of whether it has any merit or not. That's, I think that's the leadership we're currently dealing with. Um, and so I don't feel that enthusiastic about things that can be done in sort of parliamentary party terms. I also think that we're in this for quite a long haul as well. It's not going to be a quick fix. But one of the things, quite a few things give me hope. Um, not least the incredible uh, demonstrations that we've seen over the last year, over the police bill that's, you know, the authoritarian police bill that's working its way through Parliament, but also Black Lives Matter. Um, so much, um, the rentier strikes, there's been so much direct action and political organising um, from people who have not let go of that momentum um, that the left had. Um, just because the leadership has changed. So that gives me a lot of hope. But the other thing is that when you talk to people at grassroots level, so whether it's community organizers or local councils or you know someone at that sort of level of organizing, one thing that always comes up is there is an appetite for collectivism. People, people want to help. The pandemic has shown people coming up and saying, I do want to help. I want to help my community. I want to support local businesses. There's been an articulation of that sentiment for collectivism, which is the backbone of Labour-left uh, transformative policies. It's that principle of universalism, you know, don't ask who deserves it, everyone deserves it. That's sort of Howard Zinn thinking of universalism. Everyone deserves clean air, uh, housing security, decent job security, good health. There's been an articulation of that. And I think that the work now over the next few years is, is really building that muscle memory of collectivism that, that, that there is a desire for in this country and just to hear it around some kind of political organization that sort of work i think is already beginning and i think is actually going to be incredibly impactful guys that was brilliant we are very lucky to have wisdom and insight of this level from both of you on easter as well so thank you so much particularly it's actually quite sunny outside so do do to escape this to so cold. <laughs> I mean, it's cold, but uh, but seriously, that was absolutely fantastic, and we're very honoured to have you both. Uh, people, uh, whether you're watching live or listening to the podcast, do follow Rachel Shabby and Jess Bernard on Twitter.com because you can read their insight for free. Literally, don't have to pay for it; just there, whenever on whatever subject. Uh, so, thank you both of you. Uh, it's been a big honour, and I will. I look forward to seeing you soon in real life, IRL. Thanks so much for having me on, Owen. It's great to see you. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Thanks, Owen. Cheers, Jess. Thank you, everybody, for joining, whether you're watching uh, live or listening to the podcast. Um, that was that was very, very good, as ever. We are very lucky to have such a top-notch quality of guests on this show. Um, 
we uh, before I sign off, do uh, if you're watching live, do like the video and subscribe. Uh, liking helps the algorithm so more people watch it. Um, and for those supporting us on Patreon, so we have a team, we can do stuff like documentaries. Thank you so much. And you help you decide the documentaries we do, which have all been great ideas. Patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. We're looking to do a documentary, uh, looking at the moment about the reality facing young trans people. Uh, we've just done one about uh, companies profiteering from COVID-19 and the reality of what their work is going through. Uh, so huge appreciation uh, for that as well. Uh, we've got lots of interviews coming up. We've got lots of shows coming up. So do subscribe to the channel uh, and like, give us five stars on the podcast. And again, that encourages more people. Just finally, though, all I would say is, you know, I, just, I saw this the other day. It's like, oh, by undermining Keir Starmer, that's going to help the Conservatives. Often from people who spent years uh, attacking and demonizing uh, the Labour leadership and Jamie Corbyn for the most ridiculous things possible. And, uh, you know, I, I think the point I'd make there is, you know, Labour's, it's not, you know, individual lefties like myself do not have the power of the combined might of the British media, which relentlessly went for the Labour Party for those few years. Labour's approval ratings, polling ratings haven't fallen because people on the left have pointed out the shortcomings of the Labour leadership. They've fallen because of the shortcomings that are being pointed out and they are real and profound. This is a Labour Party, which I do not think in the history of the Labour Party, a leadership has been so lacking in, in any coherent vision. New Labour had a vision. Uh, and lots of Labour leaderships in the past who I might not agree with had a clear vision of what they wanted to do with power. And this lot don't, but they are full of people who definitely know what they don't want. And that's the left to have any role whatsoever within the Labour Party. They want the left out. And I would warn people that in the coming months, particularly if it doesn't work out well in the May elections, I think what will happen is a heightened onslaught against the left. I think Peter Mandelson being brought into the tent will be part of that. I think whatever's going on currently in Liverpool with allegations, very, very important to point this out, allegations of serious corruption in the Liverpool Labour Party, but all of this is going to be spun out uh, in ways which will be used by the Labour leadership to further attack and marginalise the left. That's the only thing they seem to have in an otherwise empty cupboard. And I think the left needs to talk about what strategy in, in, in that context is, because, you know, the, the problem, as I keep saying, is the Labour leadership are bereft of ideas and a coherent vision. Uh, they don't have answers to the crisis of social democracy, which is across Europe. Uh, the only places where the so-called centre-left are in power uh, is where they have made accommodations with the left. In Spain, the Sp uh, Labour sister party are in coalition with Podemos. Uh, in Portugal, they uh, made a pact, uh, the socialists, with the radical left. Uh, Denmark as well. In America, again, Joe Biden didn't spend his time demonising the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrats. He took them on as partners. Uh, and, and, you know, didn't demonize them as Bernie bros, like I would say the Clinton wing definitely did do. They were brought in, a lot of the policy agenda has been, you know, adopted because of the left of, of, of the Democrats. If they're going to, you know, if Keir Starmer's faction or the people around him are determined to wage a ceaseless, remorseless war against the left... And, and and as we can see, their approval ratings amongst people who voted for the Twitter, for Labour in 2019 and amongst younger people are in freefall, free fall, then I don't think they're interested in power. 
uh, not in any rational sense in any case. So we need to make these arguments. But I think the other point I would just end on is it's not all about what happens within the Labour Party. What we're seeing are extra parliamentary movements rising, BLM, overkill the bill, for example, the climate justice movement. And one way of putting pressure on the Labour leadership and the Labour Party, whether or not you want to be in the Labour Party or not, and that really is up to you, by the way, clearly, is what people do on the streets, organising and fighting. And it is those younger people, people younger than myself, I'm 36 after all, who who give hope because they're the ones who know that they are, have uh, that, that the status quo, which gives them nothing, needs to be replaced. And they're the ones who are committed unequivocally to fighting for the rights of minorities, who many in the Labour leadership feel should be thrown under a bus for electoral gain. And I think those younger people are, are those are a generation which should give all of us hope, and, and that should give us reasons for optimism. Uh, and in the coming weeks and months, as lockdown hopefully eases and some form of normality can return, those movements will only grow. And I think that is where a lot of what happens in politics will be decided on the streets, uh, not in Zoom calls, in private meetings in Westminster, in SW1, in think tanks, amongst advisors, but by people organising on the streets and forcing the powerful to listen to them, which is the only way we've ever won our rights and freedoms in the history of this country. Thank you, everybody. As ever I said, please do subscribe, press the like button, support us however you want. Uh, we've got loads coming up. Thanks to your support. So we really appreciate it. Happy Easter. Enjoy the sun. I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.